How much innocent blood has been spilled for the cause of freedom in the history of your Federation, Doctor? How many good and noble societies have bombed civilians in war, have wiped out whole cities? And now that you enjoy the comfort that has come from their battles, their killing, you frown on my immorality? I'm willing to die for my freedom, Doctor. And in the finest tradition of your own great civilization, I'm willing to kill for it too. Trekmer Babble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd, space pope, and first minister. There's no conflict of interest there, is there? Mm, yes, there is. <laughs> and I'm Elizabeth, Gascana champion and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I are beginning a five-part series delving into the Maquis. Before we look at their stories directly, we wanted to set the stage with some ancillary stories about terrorism in Star Trek, starting with TNG's The High Ground. It comes to us from the third season, was written by Melinda M. Snodgrass, and directed by Gabriel Beaumont. It aired in 1990. The Enterprise is delivering medical supplies to an unaligned planet, Rutia 4, which is in the midst of a civil uprising by a terrorist group called the Ansada. Dr. Crusher is kidnapped during a raid staged intentionally for this purpose. While held captive, the cell leader called Finn demands she treat his people who are suffering deadly symptoms as a result of a technology they use, dimensional shifting, to conduct raids past the Rutian security measures. Crusher can't actually cure this condition, but Finn has words for her. Your ship carries medical supplies for them, for the other side. Why does the Federation ally itself with the routines? We don't. All we did was bring the... Medical supplies. People were hurt. I know. I hurt them. Meanwhile, Wesley spearheads the tech investigation with Geordi and Data, uncovering the secret of the Ansada's dimensional shifting, and providing Wesley a useful distraction from the trauma of having his mother abducted by terrorists. Riker works with the Rudian security chief, Devos, to try and flush out a lead to Beverly's whereabouts. Through Will's conversations with Devos and Beverly's conversations with Finn, we learn the shape of the conflict and the nuance which governs the untenable political situation on Rudia 4. There are over 5,000 names on this list. Citizens we know to be sympathetic to their cause. They pass along weaponry and information, march in pro-Ansada demonstrations, participate in general strikes or the occasional riot. How did this ever get started? 70 years ago, we denied them independence. That gave them a noble cause. Now it's just an excuse for more violence. How can you have such a casual attitude toward killing? I take my killing very seriously, Doctor. You are an idealist. I live in an ideal culture. There's no need for your kind of violence. We've proven that. Your origins on Earth are from the American continent, are they not? North America. Yes, I've read your history books. This is a war for independence, and I am no different than your own George Washington. 
Conversation takes a back seat to action, however, as Finn executes a dimensional shift raid on the Enterprise herself, despite Beverly's objections. Their attempt to destroy the Enterprise fails, but Finn is able to kidnap Picard, a potentially more valuable hostage. Finn plans to use his hostages to compel the Federation to force the Rutians into making concessions to the Ansada. It's actually a pretty solid plan, save for the fact that Finn uses his dimensional shift to deliver the message to Troy personally, and in so doing, provides Wesley enough tech-tech data to pinpoint Finn's origins. Riker and Devos successfully rescue Picard and Crusher, but not before Devos kills Finn. As a prisoner, he would have been a focus for violence. As his followers tried to free him. Now he's a martyr. But the death toll might go down, at least in the short term. It's an imperfect solution for an imperfect world. It's unclear what future lay in store for the Rudians, but at least the conflict won't escalate right away. Uh, all of the episodes that we're looking at today, Elizabeth, I think, without exception, um, cram a lot of story and a lot of political backstory into the 40-minute runtime that they're yeah. given. Um, and that's sort of necessary telling these terrorism stories. Um, and w one of the interesting ways I think they got some shorthand across for Finn here was him presenting Beverly with those drawings of her, her eyes and her hands and things and giving yeah. him this sort of humanizing quality. You should be drawing, not killing people. I can do both. But it did make me think like, oh, God, is this like a Stockholm Syndrome situation? Like, is she being made to empathize with her captor here? Is this is this a bad sign? Yeah, I, I can kind of see that a little bit. And, you know, Stockholm Syndrome, while not actually like a um, an official medical condition or diagnosis, is also like a survival mechanism for the for the for the captive. Um, it's actually it's actually a way that people convince themselves that they're safe in an unsafe situation. And like, is it's an adaptive survival mechanism that, you know, it doesn't mean that they're weak. It just means that rather that was the best chance they had to get through that situation and like remain somewhat psychologically intact. So I just want to offer some compassion for people who are in those situations. Okay. It, but while Beverly is able to empathize with her captors, the fact that she's conflicted actually gives me a lot of reassurance. So I think classic Stockholm syndrome is when you think your captors are suddenly wonderful and they're not holding you against your will. And actually you're on their side now, like a hundred percent. And there's kind of this like splitting that happens where you're all good or you're all bad, you know? So the fact that Beverly is conflicted gives me reassurance that actually she's she still has some like psychological integrity intact and her own sense of like morality is still intact. I've treated you with respect. You've scared the hell out of me, Finn. You've controlled me through fear, just like you've tried to control this whole continent. You haven't tasted real fear yet, Doctor. Is that the best you can do? Is fear the only weapon you have? No, but it's a good one. You know what scares me the most, Finn? It scares me to think that you might win this fight and gain real power. I'm mad. I don't know anymore. The difference between a madman and a committed man willing to die for a cause, it's all become blurred over the last few days. Beverly, I don't have to remind you of the psychological impact of being a hostage. 
I know, I understand that. But their leader, Finn, he's not what you'd expect. Oh, he's certainly not what I would expect. Without cause or reason, he and his little band of outlaws have attacked my ship. But he did have reasons. The medical supplies, the arrests. I could understand and appreciate his motivations, even if I really disagreed with his methods, you know. And I think she felt very similarly. And like the episode was written in such a way to, I think, elicit that kind of response. Um, but yeah, it, it's the fact that she felt conflicted is actually a sign of emotional health. And that gives me a lot of reassurance for Beverly in this episode. That's good to hear. Yeah, it's it's a pretty nuanced episode in general, um, which uh, is one of the things I, I really like about it. Like I've said before, this is my favorite season of Star yeah. Trek. Um, even these sort of middling, and this isn't like the most amazing episode ever, but it's still, it's still pretty solid. The, the thing which made me a little concerned was the fact that Picard reacted so strongly to Beverly's empathy of him when he mm -hmm. is then captured. If we really examined our role in all this... Beverly, you were arguing for a man who may have murdered your son. And all of that plays into the, the sort of two sides of this, um, and this is getting into the topic of terrorism in general, which is that, you know, she and Finn, and then, of course, uh, Will and Devos have these... Um, expository conversations where they're sort of outlining the conflict and explaining what the the sort of logical motivations behind both sides are. But there's this other component, which is emotional. I have a life, Finn. I have a son who needs me. Is your son on the ship? Yes. I'm sorry he's on the ship. No. They have joined forces with the Routians against us. They are not your enemy. They are more valuable to me than an enemy. For 70 years, we have shouted and no one has heard us. Destroy the Federation flagship, someone will listen. Please. They are the ones who interfered. They are the ones who sent medical supplies. They are the ones who organized mass arrests. They are killing your son, not me. Please, Finn, don't do this. I had a son, too. He was 13 when he died in detention. And there's this motivation that isn't really coming from a place of the sort of efficacy of the terrorist action. It's, it's about something else. For Finn, the fact that his son died, he's gives him a lot of pain as, as it should, as it makes total sense. But he uses that pain to justify hurting other people. He wants other people to be as hurt as he feels, you know, and in some way there's a sense of like, a moral balancing to the universe. Like I, you hurt me, so now I'm gonna hurt you. And somehow that will make thing, me feel better, you know? And But also Devos has a very similar feeling. She's like- A terrorist bomb destroyed a shuttle bus. 60 school children. There were no survivors. The Ansada claimed that it was a mistake, as if that made everything all right. Are you going to tell me that, little boys? A threat? It's possible. That shuttle bus I told you about? The bomb was set by a teenager. In a world where children blow up children, everyone's a threat. They have violated my moral code, and, like, how do I make that right? It's a lot of the same themes that we were talking about in our previous episode about vengeance. Yeah, yeah where it's it's this sense of like, when you have an enemy, it's easier to fight someone who you don't 
think is like you? How can you make them this other? How can you split all of their good quality qualities away so that they're only bad, so it makes it easier for you to attack them? What happens psychologically when we create an enemy in our minds the benefit of that is it makes us it makes it easier for us to attack them and sometimes that is what cultures tribes society have deemed the, the what they want to do and so there's like this psychological rationalization of it but it's distorting because no one is just bad and no one is just good and like you and the audience being a little removed from this can is able to empathize with both sides you know you can see how they're both doing things that hurt other people because they're also hurting but also because of that like they're just kind of passing this hot potato of pain around you know like right. it never stops the cycle just keeps going like dominoes and until something changes it yeah i think rationalization is the perfect word to describe it because you're transforming <clears throat> um what is really just about uh, an unhealthy uh, trauma response, I guess you'd call it, like trying to cope with pain into, f you're framing it as justice, you're framing it as something that is political, um, which uh, that's the complicated thing about terrorism is that there is a political component, there is a justice component, there isn't, there are issues that need to be resolved that are untenable um, in this society, but it because it gets mixed up with our human or alien, whatever, uh, emotional vulnerabilities, it, yeah. it, it, there, it, it sort of fuels the fire and keeps things from getting resolved in a way that um, would actually put the potato down, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, the other thing I appreciate about, appreciate about the episode is that, you know, in the end, the story is it's not on the side of either uh, the Rudian authority or the terrorists, but it is against the violence. It is saying, yeah. this needs to stop. No more killing. But in the interim, the sort of uh, there's a side discussion that Data and Picard have where they're discussing, you know, he's having his classic Data curiosity about why yeah. are people so, why are people people? Why are human? And um, brings up one real historical example. The independence of the Mexican state from Spain. And one example that's supposed to happen in 2024, I don't know if you caught that, so very soon. Oh, no! <laughs> um, okay. The Irish unification of 2024. Which doesn't feel um, totally out of bounds now that yeah. we're post-Brexit, right? <clears throat> um, anyway, the point being that he notes that, hey, terrorism works, or at least can work sometimes. Then would it be accurate to say that terrorism is acceptable? when all options for peaceful settlement have been foreclosed? Data, these are questions that mankind has been struggling with throughout history. Your confusion is only human. You know, I think this comes up in all the episodes, um, but, you know, the language really matters, you know, and so who is a revolutionary versus who is a terrorist? It really depends on where you're standing. It could be the same people who think they're fighting for a just cause, but their enemy calls them a terrorist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I do think it's important to focus on the, like the common enemy is, is violence versus the two groups involved, 
you know, so I do appreciate you bringing up that point. Washington was a military general, not a terrorist. The difference between generals and terrorists, Doctor, is only the difference between winners and losers. You win, you're called a general. We jump forward to near the end of DS9's third season with Shakar. It was written by Gordon Dawson, directed by Jonathan West, and aired in 1995. For context, it is late in Season 3, Beryl has died, and so, we learn, has the First Minister of the Provisional Bajoran Government. Sisko reluctantly informs Kira that his replacement is Kai Wynn. Yes, Bajor has gone full theocracy, but the more alarming issue to our heroes is the fact that her political leadership bodes very badly, given their history with her. In the midst of her misgivings, Wynne pays Kira a visit at DS9. Have you suffered a recent loss? Or are you still mourning the death of Minister Caleb? It's for Vedic Beryl. It's been three months since Beryl left us to walk with the prophets. You must have cared for him deeply. I loved him. As did I. Is that why you never mention Beryl's name when you talk about your peace treaty with Cardassia? As I recall, he's the one who negotiated it. Beryl saw himself as simply carrying out the will of the prophets. He never wanted fame or glory for what he did. As someone who loved him, I'm surprised you didn't know that. After some passive-aggressive words, Wynne informs her that there's a snag in her glorious rise to power. A group of farmers, led by the leader of Kira's old resistance cell, Shakar, is refusing to share some important tech which would allow Bezier to become a trading power again. Wynne's concerns, despite her obvious personal ambitions, seem reasonable, and so Kira agrees to speak to Shakar. Their reunion is warm. It is, in fact, the beginning of a romance. We also meet Pharrell and Lupiza. Remember them? The ones who got blown up in our last episode? Kira doesn't want to tell her friends they need to obey the Kai, but she does her duty. She cajoles Shakar into at least meeting with Wynne to hammer out a compromise. However, Wynne is expectedly petulant and impatient. Shakar sounds like a prideful and arrogant man. It also seems there's no reasoning with him. Shakar is not an unreasonable man. He is desperate. They all are. I'm sure if you talk to him, you'll be able to work out a compromise. So I can tell him that you'll discuss it with him. You can tell him that. And then you can return to Deep Space Nine. You've done enough already. And please give my best regards to Commander Sisko. Almost immediately, Bajoran authorities arrive to arrest Shakar. On instinct, Kira backs him up and they make a run for it to the surrounding hills. The Shakar cell finds itself right back in the thick of the fight, but this time it's against their own people instead of the Cardassians. Weeks later, Wynne hasn't made any progress and Shakar is gaining support all over Bajor. To his shock, Sisko hears from her asking for Federation help capturing the rebels. Wynne has gone full fascist. This goes hand-in-hand with the theocracy, I suppose. He can't help her because of the Prime Directive, of course, and so she doubles down on that whole Space Karen, Stalin, Pope thing. This is about the future of our society. When someone like Shakar can defy the law and escape punishment, we risk descending into anarchy and chaos. This is a test. A test by the prophets. 
They want to see if I'm worthy of the role they've given me as First Minister and Kai. I will not fail them. I will stop Shakar by any means necessary. In the Bajoran countryside, Shakar's people find themselves in a Mexican standoff with Wynn's militia forces. The situation is tragic and untenable, former countrymen who resisted their occupiers fighting one another over farm equipment. It's a sad reflection of the tenuousness of the Bajoran society. The next time someone starts shooting, we won't be able to stop it. And I'm not talking about today, I'm talking about tomorrow, and the next day, and the next, I am talking about the beginning of a civil war. I didn't fight the Cardassians for 25 years just so I could start shooting other Bajorans. Thankfully, all stand down and determine to find a new way. To her misery, Wynne is informed that Shakar will be running against her in the election, and will certainly beat her given his reputation. Kiri gets a slap on the wrist from Sisko. Oh yeah, and there's a subplot about O'Brien playing darts that has nothing to do with anything. The end. Just a quick side note, Elizabeth, because we are musicians, and it's something that I noted. Uh, So this is the era of Star Trek when the music got pretty boring and and awful, thanks to Rick Bergman. But this episode, of all episodes... um, has a really good score, in my opinion. It's actually yeah. pretty excellent. This is apropos of nothing to do with our topic. I just wanted to point out, like, hey, if you're looking for a good Berman-era um, score uh, in, a, in an episode, this is one to check out. Um, I also... We, you know, I mentioned that these episodes are all pretty jam-packed with, like, backstory and... For that reason, I'm really annoyed by the uh, the dart story with O'Brien. It's it's not awful. It's just it has nothing to do with anything. You know, like you know, we've talked about how it's great when like the different layers of the story are all telling the same story, and this has nothing to do with anything. This is just like Miles and Bashir get to be buddy buddy and like fuck over Cork. The yeah. end. Yeah. You know. It's... Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's fine, and in an episode where the A-plot was thin, like, okay, sure, but this is not that episode. There is so much going on. Yeah, like, you totally could have given a lot more time to the, the meatier stuff that was going on. So, yeah. But, I don't know, comic relief, you know, like, just a little palate cleanser? I don't, you know, I'm sure they yeah. had their reasons, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't mesh well for me, you know? I agree, and I think the reason was just like, well, we need to make sure everyone gets their paycheck this week, but... Anyway. <laughs> um, practicality? This is space. Come on, man. <laughs> well, speaking of practicality and things that annoy me, this isn't my usual <laughs> giant Deep Space Nine soapbox, but I have to mention it. Um, the political situation that gets us to the conflict here, um, which I like, I like the conflict here, but what gets us here is so contrived and frustrating. Um like, do you remember the episode Progress from the first season where Kira has to kick that guy off of his land and on the moon? With the help of the Federation, Bajor is about to commence its first large-scale energy transfer, the tapping of the molten core of its fifth moon, Gerardo. They began tapping the core of this moon in seven days. I know. You are only three people. This project is going to benefit thousands, hundreds of thousands. I made myself unconcerned with that 40 years ago. When I escaped from a Cardassian labor camp on your precious Bajor. What we're trying to create now is what you weren't allowed to have then. You can plant whatever you want to on Bajor. Stay by yourself if you want to. That's fine. Take some seeds with you for those 
terrible roots of yours I had to eat. Just listen to reason. I refuse to allow three stubborn holdouts to jeopardize a project that will benefit so many of our people. We can tap the core using phased energy retrieval. I thought we'd agreed phased energy retrieval would take too long. It would mean waiting a full year before we can extract any meaningful amount of energy. I wish we had the time to be more delicate, but we don't. So instead, we'll act like Cardassians. Easy, Major. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's a whole struggle for her, and that's, that's actually a, a pretty good episode for the first season. Um, but that whole moon was like viable farmland, basically, that then they turned into unviable land for this power thing that they were doing, and that's why he got to get kicked off. And so now they need farmland. And in the meantime, they're setting up all of these colonies in the Gamma Quadrant, the Bajorans are, which is supposed to be great and everything. It's like, okay, you're doing all this and you can't fucking feed your own people. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, <clears throat> the scene where Kira and uh, Wynn are meeting for the first time at, at DS9, watch it. They're sitting there and right between the two actresses is a replicator. A replicator mm. makes food out of nothing. And, <laughs> and it's like, so the Federation's here giving them support, giving them two of these reclamator thingies that fix the soil but only two they can't have three because if they had three then there would be no story and they can't give them replicators so they can just fucking replicate their food and not have to farm like it's the 19th century it's it's that stuff irritates me a little bit yeah um yeah like there's a lack of consistency about the kind of post-occupation government and society that like these people are creating instead of it being like hey let's create like a through arc that connects all these different struggles it's just like this week we're gonna do this and this week we're gonna do that and like it just it feels all really disconnected and and yeah there's a lot of of conflicting inconsistencies that don't make any sense yeah, and it's not like <clears throat> DS9 is unique in that way. Voyager, DNG, the, the original series, of course, and, and all of them basically have this problem. But DS9 mm-hmm. is so often held up as being accountable to its to its internal uh, continuity that I bugs me just a little bit. But okay. there are things. Setting all that aside, I do really appreciate the political situation that Kira finds herself in here. I think this is a very good episode for her. Um, I like Shakar. I like Cisco in this episode quite a bit. Um, yeah. He's, he's very Starfleet here where he's like, I, I really, I, I think this is the only time he actually mentions the prime directive outside of maybe the pilot. Um, and, it, it, but he still is like, bitch, you're crazy. <laughs> if I may say so, your entire response to this crisis has been an overreaction. By using the militia against your own people, you're risking civil war over a couple of soil reclamators. Kaiwen, love the space Stalin, like, fascist thing you called her in the intro. Like, <laughs> wonderful. Um, and, and I love that actress. Like, that actress is so good. But yeah, Kaiwen is super manipulative. And it's, it's, in this episode, it really struck me just, like, how many different faces we saw of hers. Like, when she's talking to Kira... I was actually like, oh, I kind of get it. By this time next year, we can be producing botan, moreca, and salam grass, all valuable commodities for export. If we can attract interstellar commerce to Bajor, it will only enhance our application for membership in the Federation. I understand. She won over my trust. She won over Kira's trust. And then it turns out to be this, like, 
power thing for her. It's not about farm equipment. It's about my ability to lead. Did you explain to Shakar that you were there on the direct authority of the First Minister? This isn't about soil reclamators. This is a test. They want to see if I'm worthy of the role they've given me as First Minister and Kai. And it's also ironic that she, uh, like, a, like two seasons prior, right, end of season one, um, worked with Cardassians to, to try and stage a coup against the provisional government. What is this blasphemy? I am Major Kira Norris, and I come with proof that the Cardassians are behind Minister Jarl's attempt to take control of the government. This coup will deliver Bajor back into the hands of its greatest enemies. Are you willing to live under Cardassian rule again? I assure you there's nothing to these accusations. Then you should have no objection to an inspection of this manifest minister. And now she's like, you, no one can make a coup against me. How do you know? It's like, that's that's her. That's Karen. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the 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 heart of the the, the 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 character stuff for me here though is Kira falling back into these habits. Uh, not just her, but but her, and then by extension her all of her, her countrymen. Um, where they had 50 years of occupation and their only means of resisting um, this asymmetrical power structure with the Cardassians was terrorism, was to do these little hit and runs and, and, and violence. We looked at uh, some of the yeah. consequences of that last week with Kira. And um, so even when it's an internal issue with Bajoran against Bajoran, that their first instinct is to go back to that kind of tactic. And it's like a trauma response. Maybe that's not the right word, but it's like this trigger that they have. What we're familiar with has a really strong pull. What is familiar feels safe, even if it's not good for us. And, and like what we were talking about in the, um, in the TNG episode, you hurt me, so now I'm going to hurt you. And that just like continues back and back and forth. It, it's people continue the patterns that they know. They continue to act in the ways in which they've been treated. So, so yeah, there's for Kira and Shakar, there is this just instinct and like default way of behaving where they just really easily revert back to their, you know, resistance cell ways because that's how they know how to respond in this situation. But also, like, the Bajorans who are sent by Kai Wen, they are acting like the Cardassians acted. Yeah. And they're everyone's kind of oblivious to that at first. I mean, and and that makes sense. Again, like, what's familiar feels safe, you know? And what's familiar, especially when people are under stress, they kind of, they lose their ability to make those kind of informed choices about, like, what impulse am I going to follow right now? So... To me, like it, it psychologically does make sense to me the way people are behaving in this situation. They're just repeating the patterns that they know. Um, but I'm really glad that you know it took a couple of weeks, but eventually they figured out that like no, this is different, you know. And that's that's what you have to hope for is realizing that the situation you're in is different. It's not like it was before, and you have more choices than you initially thought you did. Yeah, and this is again where the the the, the personal emotional sort of human issues are intersecting with the political issues and making everything more complicated in that, you know, Wynn is a nakedly ambitious person um, and her ambition is, is really taking advantage of the fact that Bajoran society is very fragile right now because of 
the occupation. And we're seeing that the, the, you know, they're just starting to rebuild these little institutions, their provisional government, right? And we see how easily swayed. I mean, so in the beginning, it's like the, 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 the leader of their religion is running unopposed for being their, you know, president, their, their first minister. And then by the end of the episode, a few weeks later, it's like there's no way she's going to beat uh, Shakar, who wasn't even had no thought of being in office at the yeah. beginning of the episode, you know? And it's like, wow, these people really flagellate quickly. And that's that's something I actually would like to ask you about in terms of if there's a psychological theory behind this about how if you are recovering from trauma or in some sort of state of vulnerability, how malleable you are in terms of responding to propaganda, responding to manipulation, responding to uh, just sort of swaying really easily with the wind? What comes to mind first for me is that people want to feel safe and they want to feel taken care of, especially if they haven't felt that way before. And so because that's what they're looking for, that is what they will initially see in someone who is promising to give them those things, even if they actually can't, like Kai Wen. So like, there's this kind of idealizing projection that happens. They're like, you're gonna make everything better. And like, people will just, like a moth to the flame, will just gravitate toward whatever can give them that feeling, you know? And in some cases it could be like, you know, I think by this point, our listeners have figured out a lot of our like social and political leanings. But for example, <laughs> Trump, uh, um, they think they're good. He's going to deliver them from some uh, some oppression that they feel, you know, and even as I say it, I'm just like, that is total bullshit. But I can understand people wanting to feel like someone is going to rescue them. I can I, I get that. And it's just really tragic when. <clears throat> when that is a farce and when that and when that trust and belief is misplaced and and ultimately like that is a very young psychological stance like children need to be taken care of um but mm. yeah and but as adults you want to head toward more of a psychological interdependence um where like you are just as responsible for yourself and your own life as you are for the people around you, you know, like you're not, you know, the adult who's waiting to be saved is going to be disappointed, you know? Well, and that plays into what we do tend to think about terrorism as exemplifying, which is desperation mm -hmm. and feeling as though you don't, you have, you're out of options. Um, that's something we've talked about a few times, that sense of like, I have no choice. We want to feel like we have control over our lives, but at the same time, we have absolutely no control. Just it's like how we make ourselves feel better, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that what you want to strive for is the freedom of choice being versus compelled to make a decision one way or another that might not actually be all your available options, you know, like how, how can you be free to respond to a situation and have as many options in that response as possible 
versus being compelled by your own emotional trauma and history to respond in a particular way that after the fact you're like wait what was happening i don't think i was seeing clearly did i did i actually respond in the way that i would actually want to so i think in that way you want to aim for personal freedom of choice versus this idea that i'm free to choose anything We swing back to the end of Enterprise this first season with the 2002 episode Desert Crossing, written by showrunners Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, along with Andre Bormanis, and directed by David Strayton. If you'll unhappily recall, at this point the NX-01 is making its way to Ryza for the most boring orgy imaginable, making pit stops along the way. In this case, they respond to a distress call from Clancy Brown. Do you answer every distress call you pick up? If we can. The galaxy could use more people like you. In gratitude for Archer's help with his ship, Clancy Brown insists he and Trip participate in the titular Desert Crossing. It begins with an embarrassing meal, a staple of early Enterprise. I don't usually eat this well, but I promised her captain an exceptional meal. What are these, uh, little chunks? Uh, the essence of the mail, chopped and seasoned. The Suluban are name-dropped, but first we are treated to space the cross, or Star Trek Top Gun. You know what? With all the bodysuits they put the women in on Star Trek over the years, I suppose some shirtless, sweaty man flesh is only fair. While the boys play, T'Pol is contacted by an official from Clancy Brown's planet, who informs her that they're actually in grave danger. Clancy's... okay, sorry, his real name is Zabral. Zabral's group is labeled as terrorists by the government. Informed of this, Archer contrives an excuse for him and Trip to leave, but Zabral is aware of the communication and insists that the official is lying. He explains his real purpose for bringing them to the desert. When the caste system was finally abolished, we were led to believe that everyone would be treated equally. They still control the government, the lands, the resources, everything. We spent ten years staging protests, appealing to the courts, until finally we realized... There was only one way to get their attention. We have hundreds of camps, just like this one, all across the desert, and we are going to keep attacking the Tarothans until our voices are heard. They call us terrorists, but the truth is they have been terrorizing us for centuries. We won't last much longer without your help. It's all pretty vague, but with the government forces attacking, communications with the Enterprise are stifled. It should be noted that Zabral is aware of the fact Archer helped liberate some Suleiman in a previous episode, detained. This leaves the captain wondering whether he should repeat his performance here. Remember, there's no prime directive yet. Anyway, with Zabral's camp under siege, Archer and Tripp are forced to flee into the desert to survive while T'Pol spars with a government official in an attempt to mount a rescue. Zabral returns to the Enterprise to explain himself and learns to his disappointment that what he'd heard about Archer's liberation tactics were highly exaggerated. He agrees to help the crew rescue their captain and chief engineer, which they manage before Trip dies of heat stroke. In the coda, T'Pol reflects on the nuances of command. Decisions to get involved in the conflicts of other worlds should be left to governments, not starship captains. I know. So the first real thing of note here, Elizabeth, is actually when this episode aired or was written and aired compared to our yeah. previous two, which is this is 2002. 
of obviously oh. right on the heels of 9-11. Yeah. And I mean, you and I are just the right age to remember um, the stark divide in the way things were discussed <laughs> uh, pre and, and post 9-11. And, yeah. um, you know, terrorism as a concept was certainly discussed in the media and in culture before that it it was a thing obviously um but it it, there was a little bit more subtlety to it i think i mean you know you you understood on some level that there are two sides to a conflict and that one side is using this particular tactic but that doesn't necessarily tell you which side has the moral high ground whereas um name drop (laughs) which is uh whereas after 9-11 especially in the states um, as, as we know, suddenly being a terrorist is the epitome of evil, right? And yeah. there's no discussion to be had. They have been fighting us since the days of Benjamin Franklin, David. Mm-hmm. This is bigger than oil. This is bigger than everything else. They want to kill us. They're not going to stop until everybody in this country Use your favorite is word. a Muslim or is ruled by Muslims, no matter how nice we are. And say, they're radicalizing well, the younger and younger. Say caliphate. The we're, we're not, they want a caliphate. They want a caliphate. Yes. <laughs> In, in our case, you know, there's all this Islamophobia and things going along with it, but it's just, it's fully condemned, nuance be damned. <clears throat> and so mm-hmm. despite the shit that I will often give Enterprise, I do applaud the fact that at that time, in 2002, they made this episode with a, a, a high degree of empathy for the people who are being labeled as terrorists in this case, and a lot of yeah. skepticism towards the uh, institutional government. The irony is... I have the feeling his cause is worth fighting for. It went over my head, the timing of that episode. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because it does make it a bigger impact. I mean, there's there's so many clear parallels to like, oh, you live in a desert and you, you know, it's just like, it's very middle, middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. Yay for Star Trek for <laughs> taking a risk in, in trying to humanize um, a group of people that were really difficult to humanize like culturally at that time. And, you know, I just want to highlight again, like, look at what we did. We made a group of people all bad. That is like step number one. And how do you create an enemy, you know, is you make them all bad and you make them nothing like you. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, it's so much easier to fight them than if you, realized they were like you if you could understand why they're in the position that they're in and i'm and that is not to say that like violence is justified in any way but in in this episode in particular and you know as, as well as in the other ones that we've looked at the people that have been called terrorists have exhausted all the other options And I think that that's a really interesting moral question to be like, if you have tried all the peaceful methods to have your basic dignity as a person acknowledged, what is the right thing to do? Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is the fundamental question under, um, at the core here. And that level of maturity, I think is, reflected in what we're seeing we're seeing in the character of archer but also in sort of what the what this particular series enterprise is trying to do which is as i mentioned in the recap there's no prime directive yet 
And Paul kind of spells it out. She's like, The High Command has very specific protocols regarding planetary conflicts. Eventually, Captain Archer will have to create some directives of his own. Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> right. I like. I know, like, wink, wink, like, we're going to be foreshadowing something you know is coming, and we're going to pretend like we don't know it's coming. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> but it does play into something, I think, pretty astute um, that Hoshi remarks on. Of all the places the Vulcans could have landed, they chose Bozeman, Montana. Humanity's first warp drive was developed there. It seemed a logical place to begin. Well, how did they know it wouldn't alarm other nations? An alien species makes contact with the United States. Could have made a lot of other countries nervous. World War IV, it would have been, right? Because you have all these divided nation states and the aliens are picking the United States. Oh, that that's, you know, that in, in reality, that would very likely cause a lot of conflict, right? Yeah, could you imagine like, oh, if today aliens made first contact with humans and they went to Saudi Arabia. Yep, or China or Russia they, or us. Yeah, exactly. And when you bring up that point about aliens making contact with like one civilization, like one culture, one government, almost pretending that like, oh, you're a mono monoculture, just like all the other like planets in Star Trek, right? <laughs> you don't right. have internal divisions or differences. Um, you know, I'm reminded of another sci-fi franchise, um, the movie Arrival that came out um, oh, yeah. a couple years ago. Yeah, and I just, I loved the spin. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen that movie. The aliens purposefully make contact with multiple nation states and the, all those people have to come together to get the message. Yeah. Like they don't give the full key to any one uh, point of contact like and it forces cooperation and it's almost like and if you guys can't cooperate then we know we're not going to do business with you you know so it's like it's like a test to yeah. see actually if like is the civilization advanced enough for us to be able to establish contact in the first place like can you figure it out um and that i thought was a really lovely just a really really lovely approach and optimistic in its complexity agreed yeah um, and as you say, Star Trek tends to monolithize um, on purpose, I, I, I will say yeah. defensively, because the whole point is to be allegorical. And mm -hmm. the, the entire alien species are either, as you've pointed out before, psychological components of the human condition or themselves representative of particular political factions on Earth in certain historical contexts. So yeah. <clears throat> it's not on purpose, but but the point is it, it's once in a while Star Trek sort of being realistic as it is here is is welcome to me. And mm -hmm. but to your point with Arrival, you know, there is an element of terrorism in that movie, too, which yeah. is I don't think is a coincidence is that the, these these concepts are linked where when you have global instability, when you have these um simmering um, uh, conflicts between nation states and then within those nation states you have inequalities and social division that <clears throat> alien contact the, yeah. the things that undermine the optimism of Star Trek um, end up it, it, what ends up coming out of that is desperation and a sense that like hey why in the 
why in the fuck are you doing this 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 high high uh, minded uh, space travel thing when you know, people are starving or whatever? I mean that goes back to our our DS nine episode a little bit, um, and that leads people to feel desperate. As we said, in desperation often is a trigger for uh, terrorist activity, and so in an, in an arrival again spoiler there is a, a internal terrorism which takes place to try and sabotage um, that unity that has to happen because that unity is such a threat to the immediate conflict that it's not worth getting over it (laughs) to get to this sort of sublime sci-fi place. I'm also appreciating like seeing Archer's growth and development throughout the series Um, and especially because I'm just like popping into episodes here and there like I've watched you know, for the most part with like TNG and Voyager and DS9, I've watched the whole series already. And now I'm just like popping back in and catching these chapters and be like, oh yeah, I remember that that now. But I haven't watched any of Enterprise. So like when I when we watch episodes for this podcast, it's my first time seeing it, yeah. which is, I'm, I'm enjoying it more than when we first started. So, you know, <laughs> Enterprise is winning me over. Um, but I'm also seeing stuff out of context. And even with that, I can see Archer's moral dilemma you're not thinking about helping these people. I was thinking about those Sulaban prisoners. If we hadn't helped them escape, we wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, to Paul's ears must be burning. Want your chief engineer's advice? What is it? Walk away. They lured us down here under false pretenses, and now they're asking us to help them fight a war? That's a lot different than breaking a few innocent people out of prison. Zabral, even if I were the warrior you thought I was, that's not why we're out here. That's a really, really hard place to land, you know? And like, so even though it's kind of wrapped up in the like quandaries and pre-development of the like prime directive that we know is coming. And like, now we're seeing situations in which like, oh, this is why we had to come up with that, you know? So like, even though it's kind of couched in this like slightly too self-aware foreshadowing place, I still really like seeing Archer's like um, internal conflicts about this and how, you know, at the time when he saved the Sullivan he like didn't think about that. But now when he's being asked to do it again, he's starting to see like, oh, this is a much more complex situation than I am qualified for. Like this is above my pay grade and has huge ramifications. And what do I do? What do I do when I believe in a just cause, but to tip the scales in either way is more, is a moral disservice to myself and to these people. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're seeing that because it it, it is, if you watch the series front to back, it's a little inconsistent, but Mm. it's there that through line for Archer. So you're doing a good job curating the enterprise experience (laughs) for me. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's the plan. (laughs) Um, But uh, it is, it is good to see, you know, we mentioned in the TNG episode, how Picard's thing to date is like, I don't have a good answer for you. And there's, there's a certain wisdom to Picard's stance there. And Arch, you know, we start the episode with Archer and Trip, you know, behaving like frat boys playing this lacrosse game. And it gives you the image of like, boy, these people are very immature. And it ends with him reflecting on his past decisions and realizing that these situations, whatever your gut reaction might be, whatever your moral instinct, you might call it, might be, 
that is not the enlightened... Acting on that is not the enlightened way to be. And we're seeing Archer slowly get to a place where he's a little bit more like Picard. Um, And that... That's what the prequel to Star Trek should be, in my opinion. So I, I have to applaud that. So I want to circle back to the TNG episode to start. And one kind of philosophical quandary that Finn posed, which I thought was really interesting, was the Federation's involvement in what was mm. happening on Rutia 4. They have joined forces with the Rutians against us. They are not your enemy. They are more valuable to me than an enemy. For 70 years, we have shouted and no one has heard us. Destroy the Federation flagship, someone will listen. Please. They are the ones who interfered. They are the ones who sent medical supplies. They are the ones who organized mass arrests. They are killing your son, not me. Everyone on the Enterprise thinks they are a neutral party on a mission of mercy. And they're like, we're not really involved with this. We will help you both equally, you know, um, but we're not going to take sides. And Finn's like, that is bullshit. You have taken sides. You're helping them, but you're not really helping us. You're only helping us now that we've like kidnapped you, you know, like we had to force your attention. You're here. You're involved. And pretending that you're, hands are clean when they really have blood on them is just a delusion on your part. And I don't think he's completely wrong, you know? And, and of course it's also a huge allegory for, you know, the U S's involvement in other countries, you know, like we think we're there to help and we're often making things worse. So, well, <laughs> that's a whole can of worms too, which we're going to open because yeah. <laughs> that's what this, this is, this is about. Um, we think that we're there to help, uh, or we know that we're there to serve our own interests, but we yeah. create a palatable fiction for media consumption that says we're there to help. Um, oh, propaganda then. Yeah. And that's, I mean, propaganda's at the center of the uh, Enter- Enterprise episode, I would say, more than anything else. If they hadn't responded to the distress call. Instead, they had maybe run into this planet and met the official government people first who are like, there are these terrorists who are attacking us. You know, Archer would have never had any reason to ex- to believe that there was any other perspective possible here. So it's just yeah. which screen you're watching, which perspective you're giving, totally changes your outlook on, on, a, on a conflict, which is complicated. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and that's propaganda. And, yeah, it's... I do wish in the in the Enterprise oh, sorry in the TNG episode there had been a little bit more accounting, especially with Picard, because um, that's mm-hmm. his he's the talking captain about like the hypocrisy here because you know giving medical supplies to people because they are being hurt by terrorists is weakening the aff- the efficacy of the terror attacks. Sounds good, because we don't like violence, we don't like people to die, yes, yes, but it is, you are then affecting the outcome of the conflict, aren't you? Even if it doesn't feel like you are, because you're not giving them weapons or whatever. And I think that was pretty pointed on Finn's part, like you say, and I I wish Picard had 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 to account for that a little bit as a, Mm -hmm. as a, you know, a, a representative of the Federation. 
Yeah, in that episode, it's almost like Beverly has the more balanced perspective, you know, like Picard, honestly, like maybe isn't there long enough to be able to empathize with the other side. And and I, I find that a really interesting play like for once we're like Picard no you need to understand you know like I felt that way during the episode and Picard is so rarely in that position where they're like no no you don't get it you know yeah Federation has a lot to admire in this but there's a hint of moral cowardice in your dealings with non-aligned planets you're doing business with a government that is crushing us and you say you're not involved you're very very much involved you just don't want to get dirty you accuse us of cowardice while you plant bombs in shadows. I am fighting the only war that I can against an intractable enemy. Now I'm fighting a big war against a more powerful adversary. He's added another chair to the negotiating table. You added the chair, Captain. I am simply forcing you to sit in it. In selecting these episodes, I was just looking for takes on terrorism that were not yet about the Maquis, because we're leading up to that. Um, yeah. And what I have found is that a, a, a common element here is the integrity of institutions. And generally, what we see is that terrorism arises when those institutions, confidence in them is eroded. And yeah. we, we see that, of course, um, in TNG, with Devos explaining that, you know, she's essentially enforcing a police state you hate them as much as they hate you. Believe it or not, I always considered myself moderate. But changed your mind. <sighs> Being stationed here for six months, watching the body count grow, the three assassination attempts on my life. We all like to describe ourselves that way, don't we? And um, she says she was radicalized, which is an interesting way to put that when she's on the side mm -hmm. of the... Um, the, the authority in this case. She was radicalized mm -hmm. into being pro-police state to, to quell the terrorism. Um, and then in DS9, of course, we see that, as we talked about, the, 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 the tenuousness of the Bajoran government and the society in general and how fragile that is and how you put someone in there like, like Wynne. You had talked about how Wynne is kind of a Trumpish figure, which I think is, I think is correct. And mm -hmm. If that's too close to home for anyone listening, there are plenty of examples of the strong man. Um, you've got Orban and Bolsonaro, and you could even <clears throat> make the argument about less right-wing leaders around the world. Point being, um, you're filling up a psychological space in, in what people need. In, I think you described it as like safety and reliability. Mm -hmm. Um, when the institution can't fulfill that, you're filling it up with the personality of someone who can fill that space with their ego. And that is a recipe yeah. for disaster. Yeah. So you have individuals taking advantage of the power vacuum left in the wake of failing institutions. Yeah. And then you also have people rallying against these failed institutions and I also think they're leveling a very apt criticism in that if we had had a legitimate way to get our needs met and have our voices heard, we wouldn't have gotten to this point. Tell the Kai or the First Minister or whatever she wants to be called these days that the answer is no. 
We need the reclamators, and that's the end of it. We waited three years to get the reclamators. We finally got them two months ago. And we were told they were ours for at least a year. The provisional government actually did something right for a change. Then Minister Calum died. And the next thing we know, we get an order to return the reclamators immediately. The Rakantha project is important. If they can get it underway, Bajor could start exporting goods again. It could start to change the way the rest of the galaxy looks at us. They'll stop seeing us as poor refugees and start seeing us as equals. I don't give a damn how the rest of the galaxy looks at us. We're trying to feed our own people here. We spent 10 years staging protests, appealing to the courts, until finally we realized there was only one way to get their attention. We have hundreds of camps, just like this one, all across the desert, and we are going to keep attacking the Tarothans until our voices are heard. They call us terrorists, but the truth is they have been terrorizing us for centuries. I'm not saying that is the only option at that point, but I can see how the institution created that situation by not making other things available. And I also think about how so many institutions, you know, we look at them and we say, oh, that's broken. Like in this country, um, people say policing is broken. The prison system is broken. And when they say that, I think there's this, uh, there's this intention to fix it and make it better. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, that's, that's great. But I think there comes a point if you really continue down that road of realizing the institution isn't actually broken it's operating exactly how it's designed to. And so in that, and if that's true, if there's this kind of acceptance of inequality and suffering of other people built into the institution, you can't reform that. You have to completely dismantle it. The police and prison complex that you're describing is much more in the zeitgeist at the, this particular moment than terrorism. So I th I'm glad yeah. you made that comparison because there is, there is a fear um, among, I would say many of many people who want to want to moderate their positions as, as Devo said, she did. Um, there is this idea that you recognize the flaws in something and you want to see a, a peaceable, nonviolent reform to a system um, because that seems to satisfy the like aesthetic or the like moral context that you're able to put around the, the, the problem. But what I like about how the Star Trek episodes always give us the perspective of the people who are labeled as terrorists. We're always mm -hmm. in their, in their zone and in their, in their perspective is that, you understand that sometimes these things, there is simply no reforming. There is simply no way to fix the thing that is, it's not even broken. It's as you, as you just put it, it's like it is doing what it's supposed to do. And in that case, how can you not understand or at least give some sort of deference to the impulse to blow it up, to do what is to, to take extreme action and in the case of you know police violence you know a, a lot of times 
in conversations that I have had with people who feel maybe differently than you and I do about the issue of policing in the United States is that the insurgency against the police, the defund movement, the BLM movement, um, are themselves guilty of violent action. Specifically, they're referring to, like, you know, violent protest. And that's mm-hmm. true, and I'm not personally necessarily condoning that necessarily, but when you focus on that, it's the same argument as, like, well, the terrorists are wrong because they did terrorism. And you're not looking at the, like, well, why? Why do they feel so radicalized? What got them to that point? How can we avoid that level of um, extremism? It's like the extreme situation exists before the extreme response. Yeah. No, Elliot, that's a really, really good point. Thank you. Like, we have to understand the reason it's happening, you know, and not just condemn that that shouldn't happen and never look at like what brought people to that point. Um, but I also, I also want to take a step back and kind of examine the language that we're using, both as we're talking about like contemporary re- real world social issues and the allegories in Star Trek about this. But like, so we're, you know, we're talking, we're, we're saying we're talking about terrorism, but, and my understanding of what a terrorist is, is someone who commits violent acts in order to put fear into the hearts of a community. So part of their intention is also to create terror. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of why they're called terrorists. And I think that word has been applied beyond that definition. I like, for example, I don't, I do not personally believe that, um, BLM activists are terrorists. I know they've been called that. I think that is an inappropriate use of that term. BLM activists and protesters are not the same as white supremacist domestic terrorists. Like those things are not the same. Um, Similarly, like, um, you know, civil rights activists were called terrorists by their enemies. Mm -hmm. And historically, like we have changed that, but like those are not the same as, you know, the people that flew planes into the World Trade Center. And so I just want to be like really careful about the language we're using and like who we're calling what Mm. and and just say that you can fight against a oppressive regime without being labeled a terrorist. And I think that we're using that word, you know, today way more than we should And I think the language is really important and we need to really look at what we're calling people and why. Yeah, I have a a couple of things. One, to your point, um, again, a lot of this has to do with, again, 9-11 and the idea that the, the word terrorist now has been weaponized as tends to happen. Uh, we talked about this a little bit when we were doing our gender episodes and, and some other things, how the word woke is weaponized. Anytime you have a, a word that has a, a relatively narrow definition that describes something that's happening, the uh, ideological enemies of whatever movement is trying to be gently, let's say, uh, propagated will take the word and 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 make that sort of like poison pill it right so mm, yeah yeah um after 911 you had 
what was a terror attack. I think that's an accurate description of what happened, despite the fact that there are reasons. There are reasons that need to be understood about why that happened. But it's still, it, the point of it was to create fear, and it did. But ever since then, terror, the word terrorist and terrorism now has this, it's all associated with that kind of feeling. So you take something which is a protest movement, as you're putting it, and call it terrorism, you have poisoned it uh, rhetorically. Mm -hmm. I agree with you about that. On the other hand, uh, and this is a conflict within my own mind about this, so I'm, I'm just pointing that out. I'm not sure where I, where I fall at the end of it. Um, being a terrorist, you know, if we look at the, let's say the TNG DS9 days, the, the not 80s and 90s, it's not necessarily saying that this is evil. Like being a terrorist is simply describing a tactic. And if fear is your only resource that you're left with, then that is what it is. It's, it doesn't, it, we, we should take the poison, in my opinion, out of the word and just be accurate. I guess, I guess that's what I'm saying is we, we should just be like, is this terrorism or isn't it? And whether, and, and whether it is or not, does not give us the final say about the morality of the action. That's just a description. I appreciate that. And I'm also like really conflicted about if fear is your only tactic of course, that's what you have to use. And I'm like, ah. We're not going to solve this problem. <laughs> no, we're not. Oh, I'm sorry, Data. We are not going to solve your question in this episode. Um, but yeah, no, it's hard. Like, you know, the idealist in me is really wrestling with the imperfect world that we live in and wanting there to be less of a gap between the two, you know? Well, uh, yeah, we, we're not going to solve this question today, Elizabeth, but luckily we have four more episodes about terrorism to maybe, maybe we'll get there. That's all it takes. <laughs> um, no, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot still kind of simmering, which is good. That, that, that's, that's what I wanted uh, to get out of this because we are going to start looking directly at the Maquis next time. And I say next time specifically because uh, we are going to start uh, a different release schedule for, for the pod. Um, as our listeners can imagine, it is a lot of work um, and we're, we're doing our best. But uh, we're going to do uh, every other week releases on the actual podcasts. And in between, for those of you uh, who are following us on YouTube, we will have smaller uh, bonus videos of various types. Uh, the uh, Strange New Worlds uh, original series side-by-side -side that we did a few weeks ago was really popular, um, and we're, we're going to do more things of, of that kind, maybe some reviews, smaller things um, yeah. to make to keep everybody engaged. But uh, we will be looking at the origins of the Maquis in two weeks. So I, I look forward to that, Elizabeth. I look forward to that too. And um, I do appreciate that we're not trying to solve this issue, you know, you know, in one or five episodes. And when you were speaking just now, I was thinking about a concept that keeps coming back over and over in my school program right now, which is um, the tension of the opposites. And just in this example of just what does it mean to fight for your freedom, you know, which is a little bit of an oxymoron potentially, but it's like, you know, we're not saying you're all good, you're all bad, which resolves that quandary right which resolves the tension but we're holding it and when you hold that tension 
something new can come out. And so I'm just, I wanted to appreciate that. I appreciate that's what we're doing right now. Absolutely. Thank you as always for your insights and the wonderful conversation and taking the time with me. Thank you to our listeners and patrons and all of that. Uh, Please subscribe, comment, engage, review. All of those things are very helpful as we uh, continue this uh, wonderful journey. Elizabeth, I will see you next time. See you next time. Does that make sense? <coughs> Fine, I'm sorry. You're good. <coughs> oh. <coughs> I hate this. Oh. <coughs> okay. Wow. No, that was good.